If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey folks, this is Dr. Scott here with my bestie. Dr. Shiloh. Hello everyone. Back. Yeah, welcome back. So last time we were here, we talked about mass shootings and the 20-year anniversary of Columbine. And we covered, well, what we tried to do was we tried to cover an aspect that was not quite so saturated. And we wanted to focus on aspects of the crime that didn't glorify the killers right and focused on just particular aspects of how it happened and sort of the social phenomenon and where we're at today where we're at today and one of the things we ended on which we only touched on briefly because there are other people who have gone in depth is talking about the survivors and the people who have gone on to thrive after columbine 20 years later where these High school students are now in their mid to late 30s right. and have kids of their own. And there's a wonderful podcast out after Columbine. Since Columbine. Since Columbine, excuse me. Since Columbine with Colorado Public Radio. It's about six episodes. They're short. They're really well done. Please listen to them. They give some really great stories. But what we're going to do this week is we're going to focus on resilience. And resilience is a term that we use in the field of mental health to describe a person's ability to experience trauma, move through it, restabilize, and go on to thrive. It happens in some people people more easily than it does in others, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the factors that are part of that. So in order to do that, Dr. Shiloh, I want you to talk about the tail end of our last episode, what you finished on, which was about what happens now 20 years later with some of these people that did get through this horrible thing. Right. Um, so I talked about some of the amazing sort of helping sort of careers that they were drawn to, um, whether it was in the medical field, like doctors and nurses or first responders. Uh, You can imagine how all of those people, counselors and therapists, how much of an impact those people had on them when they were children in the aftermath of going through that. And then those that then became educators, five of them, um, are back at the school teaching side by side with educators that were there the day Columbine happened. So that it's phenomenal. I think it it, it is such a, a cool story of just 
resiliency and the full circle sort of nature and evolution of how it happened for those folks, especially. Um, but when when I think of resiliency, I usually explain it as it's someone's ability to bounce back. And we used to think in the psychological field that you're kind of born with it or you weren't. And then we've learned that you can actually build your resiliency. There's Absolutely. stuff you can do on the front end to make sure you are going to be more resilient. And there are things that you can do to make sure that the children you raise right. are resilient. Right. And you, we, we talk about resiliency a lot in police psychology because it's either a critical incident happened and now we're trying to help them through that or it's a critical incident is going to happen in your career let's make sure you're as prepared right. as possible and giving people solid steps on how to do that yeah oh yeah and some that's one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit about is that some of the the basic building blocks the foundational elements of resiliency may come naturally to some people and not so naturally to others and that's okay there's no judgment not having resiliency does not imply that someone's weak it just means that they don't have access to tools these virtual tools in your toolbox to utilize and it's a matter of exercising them just like going to the gym so once again to kind of build on what you were saying the ability to deal with a cope or cope with a trauma a crisis event or a series of events and still return to what we call the pre-crisis status. So, um, God, I'm so old. But (laughs) for those of you out there that are into vintage toys, there was a toy uh, that was sort of like Are you calling yourself vintage? I'm so vintage. (laughs) Yes, I'm not old. I'm vintage. But there was a toy that was for toddlers, and it was called – they were called Weebles. And they were like little people, like you would – about this a little bit bigger than a Lego, so harder to swallow, but sort of egg-shaped. But they were all people, and there was a whole series of toys like trucks and houses that had a little seat for the Weeble to sit in. But the tagline of Weeples was, Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. And the commercial would play that over and over again where you would see the little egg-shaped character could get knocked over, but he would come back up and he would sway or she would sway, but eventually come back to that still stable, balanced point. Upright position. That upright position. And even, what was it? There was another, the inflatable clown, that Bobo, that you used to be able to punch. Oh, yeah. We does, have one. You do? Yeah. Does, does your uh, little one oh, yeah. take off on she it? Oh, yeah. She partakes. She probably she practices does her, her self-defense moves with it. <laughs> right. Her MMA moves. She's seven. So, <laughs> so, yeah, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Resiliency allows um, the individual to emerge from that stressful situation or period with more what we would call internal internal fortitude, and then access their own resources. So they may have resources that work for them well. They may have resources that don't work for them well. When I'm teaching cops and I ask them what their coping skills are, you know, all these arms go up. Alcohol. No, working out. Monster energy. I'm like, okay, those all have their place. Two out of the, or one out of the three. Well, they have okay. their place in mo- certainly some in moderation more than others. But there are other virtual tools that are way more important in the long run. So being resilient and being able to return to that level of stability 
it acts as a buffer or a protector from long-term damage from trauma and those long-term consequences of that trauma. So the daily challenges can have a, actually a positive benefit. If we talk about something that isn't trauma, like a kid dealing with other kids on the playground, as stressful as that is for kids, that is actually the learning environment where they get to deal with daily stressors, where the, ch- the parent that sees their child fall down and looks at them and says, you okay? Okay, let's keep going. What you going to do? As opposed to the parent <laughs> that runs over and like, oh, you're, are you okay? Are you okay? Because the child is going to mirror that anxiety that they see in their parents. Unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot of parents that will disagree, especially right. some hovering ones. But that's right. actually a, a really pretty specific example of how that works. It's a great example. You have yeah. to be exposed to hurdles to learn how to start getting over them. And they start small. On right. On the playground. Exactly. On the playground is, is the perfect place. Yeah. And dealing with interpersonal relationships is another one instead of becoming sort of avoidant of relationships and avoidant of conflict. So certainly... The learning environment is very important, but there's a certain optimum optimum level for each individual that is going to be based on a number of factors. So what they've been exposed to in an environment like that, but also it can, besides upbringing, it can be their level of socialization, the level of socialization that they witness their parents interacting in, their culture of origin, and of course, good old DNA. You know, there are some people that are going to have more challenges in accessing these things than other people. But it doesn't mean that you can't find a good, solid set of tools for it. So resilient people uh, tend to respond to adverse situations rather than react. So it's, I like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a basic, if I'm working with someone working on an anger management protocol or someone who has really low self-worth or has problems in confrontations, but they want to be successful in work and maybe their work requires confrontation, then building a foundation of resilience is going to be, for the first part, is going to be teaching them to breathe and slow the process down so that they're not immediately going into fight or flight, learning to respond, responding in anger is different from reacting in anger. Mm-hmm. Anger is sometimes justified. Anxiety is sometimes justified. Sadness is just sometimes justified. But if you respond rather than react, you end up developing more of a sense of a mastery of these situations rather than a feeling of hopelessness or helplessness. Like I can't, I can't navigate through this. Mm-hmm. And what is also interesting is the different ways that you can get there to develop that. It can be through therapy. I'm a big proponent of therapy. Um, anything that you do for self-empowerment, which might be finding a great self-help book. Yep. You know, there are some really great books out there. There are some crappy ones. I don't think that anybody is really saying anything new. I think that what they are doing is finding different ways to reach audiences that maybe they couldn't reach before or the they may be more attuned to the time. So just doing that work I love, is helpful. I'm a big proponent of therapy also, but I love when I've been working with a client for a good deal of time and they finally find that book where it clicks for them. Right. And maybe it's what we've been saying for months. <laughs> oh, you just have to bite your tongue. Like, I know. I've been telling you about that. <laughs> I told you so. And they're just like, it's like magic. And, and 
I don't care. However it clicks, it's wonderful. But something about them sort of owning that of like, I went out and found this book and then I read it and now here's all this great stuff I'm going to put to use when I really know it's it's a culmination of all of it. Right. <laughs> but I love right. that. I think it's so, it, it, it makes the client feel very empowered, which is so cool. And another part of that, part of the therapy process, <clears throat> excuse me, is also mentorship. You know, we, we are doing dual roles. We are providing mental health therapy, but we also are working as a mentor from an object relation standpoint, they're, they're witnessing someone who is willing to see them as possibly mastering mm-hmm. these tools, which then give them the foundation for the internal fortitude. One uh, people who do this really well, I think, are coaches. Like a really good athletic coach can probably have more positive impact on a kid that comes from difficult family environments than anything else. Right. Just knowing that someone believes in their ability and is gentle with them but firm but challenges them, mm-hmm. all those things that actually we're supposed to be doing as parents. Right. So there are studies show that there are several factors that develop and sustain a person's resilience. And the first one is the ability to make realistic plans and then be capable of taking the steps in order to realize that plan. Most people are, are capable. I mean, they're, we're, we're capable of doing these most basic things. However, individuals may not believe that they are capable of, or they may not feel that they have the motivation. So sometimes you have to break it further down. Mm-hmm. But to make a plan, which is also, we use a term, that in order to make a plan, you really have to have the ability to be future-oriented. You have to think that there is a future for you, right. right? A lot of us have that automatically. Oh my God. I don't think any other way. <laughs> right. I was like, I, got, I live in the future way too Exactly. Much. I got bills to pay. I got laundry right. to do. You kind of automatically live in some ways, but then there also needs to be sort of higher level plans and hopes and fears and for what we'd call personal realization. And even kids have that. You know, even kids have the idea of like what they want to be when they grow up or who they who they want to be in relationship with their parents. So another uh, factor that would be confidence in their strengths, strengths and abilities and those that confidence can generalize. It's another thing that's so important is that when somebody is good at something, when a, a student, a young person is good at something to make sure that we try and generalize that confidence to get outside their comfort zone in other areas. So somebody that's really good in athletics doesn't just know themselves and their identity as someone who is a jock. Because if that's all they know, then they feel a deficit in other areas, which will lead to really doubting that their their self-worth or doubting mm-hmm. that their identity is actually whole. And the same thing for someone who's great in academics or great in music, but they're not challenged and really required to develop some other areas. That's a really lopsided. That's like a three-legged stool. You know, that's not yeah. as stable. I, um, I like to tap into this with people who are feeling overwhelmed or going through a trauma or a really tough time in asking them, what did you do to get through the last really bad thing that you went through? Because when they can pull strength and confidence from, oh, I got through that, let me let me remember what I what some of the things are that I did that that promotes that self-efficacy of I can get through this too. And sometimes as a clinician you have to remind them, "Hey, by the way, you actually did get through that." Oh, right? Sometimes it's, they forget. It's like very similar yeah. experiences and they're like, "Oh, yeah." Oh, wait, I did get through yeah. that. Yeah. 
Another one, uh, one of these factors is communication and problem-solving skills. And once again, these are things that, you know, unless there's an absolute glaring deficit that parents and educators notice, these things might not be addressed in the way that they need to. Like, say, someone who has, like, a, a mild learning disability it's going to be clear that they need extra attention in this way. But even so, someone who doesn't have an, a learning disability may need that kind of reinforcement and exposure to social niceties. You know, it's like it's why we used to have classes that were devoted to that, to like, right. you know, how to, how to be polite, how to right. engage in public. Manners. Classes. Manners, yeah. Which I, I'll try not to turn into an old man waving my <laughs> fist at the sky about manners. A vintage old Because I'm southern. <laughs> uh, and the other is to, the one, in, and this is the last, but in many cases it's one of the most important, is the ability to manage really strong impulses and feelings. And that's something that really needs to be taught as a toddler. Because it's a lot harder to learn it as an adult than it is as a toddler. When a parent is teaching kid by by showing how to manage feelings. If you've got a parent that's just like falling apart at every single challenge that comes in life, you're pretty much making sure that that's the way the kid's going to react. Or they're going to boomerang into another set of behaviors that's equally problematic that may present differently. Mm -hmm. And so... When it goes back to the responding rather than reacting, because that's impulsiveness when you're reacting. Right. So what's interesting is now that this this area is being studied, this area of resilience, is that we can look at the things that are negatively correlated. So personality traits of neuroticism and negative emotionality, and this represents like the tendency to see and to react to the world as either problematic or threatening or distressing and to view oneself as vulnerable. So if you're in that state, there's no sense of efficacy. No. You know, that's not going to – you're not in a place – an individual like this is not in a place where they think, I can recover from anything. They, right. No, because the world is a forbidding and unsupportive place, and I am not capable of adapting to it. Um, positive correlation stands with personality traits of openness and positive emotionality, and that represents people having a tendency to be able to engage and then confront – with the world, confront the world with confidence um, in order to achieve goals and direct their own goals and plans. So I want to be really careful here that I'm not telling you that you've got to teach your kids or you've got to teach every, we all need to learn to pump sunshine up our own ass (laughs) because that's not it. It, Like there's a, that fake optimism is not what I'm talking about. Not, you know, pop happiness psychology, but it's the idea to look at the world through a stable lens and realize that there's a balance. And there actually is, Mm -hmm. even in the worst of times, there is balance Mm -hmm. to be found. And that is another foundational brick of, of resilience. Okay, so additional studies show that, like it was said years ago, that it takes a village. 
resiliency forms as a result of social interaction that goes beyond the family. And one of the primary factors of that development is social support. And the social support can come in a number of different ways. It doesn't have to mean that it's the a community of faith three times a week. It's about being able to engage in school in macro and micro environments. So you have your big classes, you have your small classes, you have your group of friends in this environment, you have your group of friends in this environment. That should always be encouraged because it gives um, it gives an individual the ability to develop to develop the idea of solidarity and trust and start to experiment with engaging in intimate conversation and intimate relationships. And I don't mean physical, sexual, I mean emotional. And of course, young women, interestingly, we were talking in our last episode about young women being actually more likely to be traumatized. But we weren't, uh, what we need to say now is that they also have more likely of an ability to re- to refract back or right. or refragment not refragment defragment and recompensate because they are engaged socially with their peers. Right. They are willing to share intimacies even at uh, you know the adolescent stage and that is where they're kind of naturally socialized to pursue that. I'm not making I'm making a generalization. I shouldn't say that all young women sure. are able to do that in the same way. And certainly for some parts of that population, it's going to be easier than others. But it is a necessary component. Well, and I always tell people you, you having a social support system is everything when it comes to resiliency. You know, I feel like it's the foundation, but you also have to use it. You know, if you're going through something. You have to start pulling on those people that are there to support you. Oh, it's the and hardest thing in the world. It, especially for people that are problem solvers themselves oh, yeah. and they're fixing other people's <laughs> problems to then feel like they're going to burden someone with theirs when they're finally going through it. That's what you have to utilize those people. Yeah. And you don't have to go to the same person for everything. You know, you go to your mom for one it's, thing, you go to your best exactly. friend for something else. and You know, it's frustrating for me as somebody that's a fixer and a helper and trying to teach clients this very valuable thing that we're talking about and yet being so guilty of it myself. One of my best friends from college who is a wonderful, gifted, and talented individual, and she's had some tough times. And when I don't hear from her, I know things are bad. And when she doesn't hear from me, she knows things are bad. And then we'll do this dance where we're texting or we're Facebooking, Okay, what's going on? Are you okay? Well, I'm gonna you know, like stop being evasive. Just spill it. Just spill it. And we're doing it to each other. I mean, we, right. this has been going on for 20 plus years. So <laughs> once I think what you're saying is absolutely spot on because it's not just about having those connections, but actually utilizing. You can have all the wires in place, but if you're not putting any juice through, yeah. then nothing's going to get powered. So along with this, you. This ability to manage strong feelings is even further solidified by social interaction because you're learning, oh, I can't pop off in this situation. Oh, I have to manage my feelings. How are other people feeling about this? Am I different? Am I the same? You know, what it's doing is it is encouraging meta levels of cognition, Mm -hmm. thinking about thinking criticizing your own thinking and learning to be a critical thinker as a young person is 
incredibly important for resiliency. Positive self-concepts, having close bonds with at least one family member or someone that they can really understand that's emotionally stable. Going back to what I was saying earlier is having that coach or that teacher or that person that sees right. sees the, the positive in them. For kids that I've worked with in really, really bad situations, I remember one young man, a youngster, an adolescent, very bad situation, no positive role models in the family, nothing, and yet he was managing to thrive and hit because his hero was Spider-Man. Okay. You know? take it. It's something. And he could, he could relate. I mean, I had another one that was like that, another teenager that was really into Superman. But the right reason this kid liked Spider-Man was he said he's a kid. He has to struggle with school. He gets in trouble all the time. But he still does the right thing. I mean, this it was Aww. amazing to see that. So that's a great example. Um, when we go down to basically the the boiled down version of what the American Psychological Association says for 10 ways to build resilience. Here it is. This is the bullet point. You maintain good relationships with close family members, not toxic ones. Like if you don't have any good family members, then don't try because that's unhealthy. But if you're not try Spider-Man, but let's say this, if you don't have any close family friends, you don't have any family members or others that you're in a positive relationship with. That's a whole other level of work that needs to be addressed, but there should be hopefully some positive influence that you can have in your life, and you can go out and find that and foster that. You avoid seeing crises or stressful events as unbearable problems. So just it's about sort of what the 12-step program says is accepting the things that you can't change, but understanding that that's not the totality of your reality. Right. so, like, when we talk about the survivors of Columbine, they are survivors of a horrific event. But it's not all who they are. They have gone on to be other things. They are other things other than a victim or a survivor to the people in their lives. So sometimes I get worried about people who identify with the trauma in their life, and they keep reliving and reopening that wound. I'm not diminishing or dismissing that trauma that went through, but we all have a choice of whether or not... We sit in that. Right. And I know that that's a really, I mean, I've, we debate that in the community all the time, especially with parents who have lost children, because sometimes there's a mistaken idea that if I stop grieving my child, if I stop grieving my husband, my wife, my, my loved one, then that means I don't respect them or I'm letting go. It's, it's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's about honoring the love and the, the relationship that you had, but allowing you to move on. Right. And some people can't see themselves moving on. That's a difficult one to Sue work Cleveland with. Sue Cleveland touched on that in her book because she finally found strength and the ability to move on once she started being involved in um, suicide survivor outreach prevention awareness programs. And her husband was like, that's really morbid that you go and talk about this every week or you're going to conferences and da 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 And she, it's like, okay, you have your idea of it, but this, this is helping me. This is my me. purpose. But I could also see how you know there are people reliving it or re-traumatizing themselves. But for her, it was more of, of her post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, definitely there, there are those people. That's a, that's a really great example. And so 
being able to move past the idea of those problems being unbearable, as we said, is then the next step would be to be able to develop these realistic goals and move towards them. We touched on that before. And then to take decisive actions in adverse situations. That's a tough one because how do you practice that? I think it's about first is being aware if that's a particular deficit that you have. Right. You know, I remember working with a client who has a really hard time spending money on clothes, even though she needs clothes for work because she comes from a depression era family. Mm -hmm. Even though she has money, her family does not have money. And the idea of buying the shoes that she actually needs to be able to be a professional in her job brings on an amazing amount of guilt hmm. that she has to, to really be challenged by. Now, that's not the same thing as being in an active shooter drill, but right, right. it is an example of something that a dynamic that we can allow to have great influence in our life without taking action on it to make it better. And I could see people who may be exposed to their jobs of more trauma being able to build on this before it happens. Yes. You know, dispatchers or EMTs and other types of first responders in prevention because eventually it's going to happen. So building on that, an adverse situation, trying to work through it, the next part would be where do you look for opportunities for self-discovery after a struggle with a loss? As you were saying, Sue did that with Mm -hmm. finding a purpose. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs a purpose. And sometimes, especially working with men, like what's your purpose? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I got to work. I pay my bills. It's like, well, you got to have a purpose. So sometimes I will back it up. I'll take it back about six steps and I'll try and get in touch with another part. Like, well, what are your hobbies? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes the hobbies are like the back door to find out what people are passionate about and what their interests are. And then you can get to what drives you and what part of who you are wants to express through these activities. And if you're pretty limited, I just want to encourage you to try and and expand that. Expanding that only makes you bigger with more tools uh, accessible to you. Well, and that that term that I use, post-traumatic growth, that is sort of what we're talking about here, where someone can go through a horrific situation, but what... How have you grown from it? How have you learned from it? How have you become a better person out of even most terrible? Your son murders people and then kills himself and you are the outcast of the world how do you come back from that it what is your post-traumatic growth and instead of saying that people are like recovering after ptsd or you know it's in remission no we we would like to get people beyond you know what i don't want to say silver lining that's like downplaying it but how have you grown from this tragedy what will you never do again what will you do different how are you um, more aware or um, becoming more uh, self-aware and a lot of it's internal. It is internal. And it's a, I think it's a recursive movement as well. It's like you four steps forward, five steps back at times. Mm-hmm. But you just keep moving. And it's about evolution and growth. And they're you know, placing things emotionally in your interior that you know, well, this will never be again. And I can honor it. I can let it go. Or I can realize that this was a horror and I have to have something that balances out that horror and you keep moving. Yeah. But that's – and that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. I can't imagine, you know, being in her position. Well, right. I actually can to an extent. Um, and 
part of it is you just keep moving. Right. Because we know there's no such thing as closure. No, no such thing as closure. And so post-traumatic growth kind of fits nicely in that void where we think closure would be. Yeah. That idea of people like coming to therapy, I just want closure. It's like, oh, the only closure you're going to get is is what you decide that it's going to be. That's really all that's going to be. So this one also, another factor is to develop self-confidence. Self-confidence, I think, is such a loosey-goosey term because it means something different to everyone. Self-confidence doesn't mean that you're, you know, sparkling and bubbling all the time. You can have quiet self-confidence. You can have shy self-confidence. But the idea that you have efficacy in the world and an ability to, like we said before, look to the future or look to where you are right now and make steps in any direction and that whether that's engaging with people or coming to bear with the challenges that you face day to day developing and there's a lot out there that develops a lot of the self-confidence stuff out that's out there is so mealy and bubbly and and sparkly i can't stand it but there's some good books out there for it so keeping a long-term perspective and once again just always pulling back pulling back pulling back i don't mean detaching but looking at a tragic or traumatic event as one small speck on your life that may have an enormous impact but it's not the totality of who you are so once again resiliency really has to do with perspective and that's a more intellectual view of it than a child would have but as an adult i think that's one of your biggest weapons it's 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 one of the and the one that will have the most efficacy the quickest is pulling back and looking as like this is not all who i am right some of this will pass some of it won't i can move forward Mm -hmm. having varied roles identity roles exactly um maintaining a hopeful outlook expecting good things just expecting good things as opposed to expecting bad things i can tell you right now as a clinician if you do nothing but expect bad things you will make those happen you will psychologically prime yourself for those things to happen and vice versa. Yeah. And I'm not getting all hippy-dippy about the secret, but there's a lot to be said <laughs> about visualizing goals in, in the way sports psychologists do that with their right. their clients. Yeah. So also in just the basics, the physical basics is taking care of yourself, taking care of your mind and your body. Trauma has a physiological impact on your endocrine system, on your neural system. It takes months to recover, and it's going to take even longer if you don't help it. So people who respond to trauma by just starting to down a bottle of scotch a day, they're going to delay that process by a great deal. So once again, I hope that these can kind of give you some ideas of if you see yourself in that position – the steps you can take if you have a friend or a family member that you see going through this that just understanding you can't do anything to change their behavior but you can understand the things that may be able to help and this may also help you to be able to engage in a dialogue about it because ultimately the opposite of what got these two young men to commit this horrific horrific act was a disconnection from community and connection. They disconnected from connection with other people and then they toxically attached to each other mm-hmm. that resulted in a horrific crime. On one end of the spectrum is addiction and violence and external anger expressed internally and on the other end is community and it doesn't mean that you have to be an absolute social butterfly that's not the kind of community I'm talking about but able to engage in an intimate way with the people in your life 
or even with yourself, an intimate relationship with yourself that is loving and respectful and not filled with anger or an appropriate outlet for the anger is going to help you become more resilient in the long run. How's that? That's great. Okay. I cool. like it. That was a cool little mini psych 101. And thank you for the Starbucks flat white Companion. that just completely zoomed Did me it into in? the it I in finally? think I can see through time. I've got so much caffeine in well, me right now. I'm drinking a Dopio Campana, which is two shots of espresso and a little bit of whipped cream and oh. I'm yawning. Really? Yes. Oh my god. We, 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 we I'm not ta- bored. Of we were talking about talk. the mushroom coffee, right? Did do, are you that Oh mush- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. stuff's magic. That is awesome. like I, I know it's not hallucinatory mushrooms. <laughs> hallucinatory. But there's yeah, that Amazon, it's off Amazon. I can't remember. Oh, uh, like, uh, I can't remember either. We're not shilling. Although if they want to advertise with us, they can. Oh, that'd be but awesome. that's really good. That we decided <laughs> that was the of the two instant coffees that we like. Those are the, the two. It's the mushroom coffee and Starbucks. Starbucks video. has the best instant. Yeah. All right. Coffee talk. Coffee talk. <laughs> Folks, it was great talking to you again. Um, check us out on social media. Give us a couple of stars. Uh, check out the Getting Off podcast with Nick and Jessa because we're going to be doing a live broadcast with them in Chicago. With we're so excited. awesome topic in the, case. Yeah, the topic is so wonderful and salacious. I can't wait to get into it because it's really layered. It is so layered. I don't know how the four of us are going to talk about it in an hour, an hour and a half. I I don't know. You're going to have to like, just hit me with a stick because I won't (laughs) shut up. Okay. I'm bringing my stick to Chicago. (laughs) All right, you guys take care. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye.